0: If you'd like to borrow a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and the ushers will bring you a Bible. You can leave it on the pew when you're done. As you can tell, many are away this weekend on a retreat, but we are glad that you are here and believe that God wants to speak to you His truth from His Word and receive our worship. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm guessing that many of you are glad that the... Election is over, and you don't have to hear all the political banter and discussion, at least for a while. And so you may find it a little ironic that you are going to show up here at church this morning, and we are going to talk politics of a sort. Yay. What we're doing is we're going to the book of Proverbs. Uh, we're alternating kind of topically and then exegetically through uh, expository preaching. It's kind of confusing what we're doing because Proverbs is a very confusing book. But what we are going to do this morning is see what the book of Proverbs has to say about rulers and those under their authority. Now, the last election cycle, it's, you know, the presidential election cycle, four years ago, I preached a sermon before the election called How Shall We Then Vote? And this time around, I want to preach a sermon after the election to kind of give us a proper perspective after this long political season. And it, Proverbs brings it up, and I thought, you know what, if we're going to talk about what Proverbs has to say about kings and those in authority, might as well do it around the next because I think you're going to listen more right now. Since that's the case, uh, I know this is a touchy subject for some of you, and I know that what I say this morning from the Word will not please everyone, and I'm not going to say all that some of you want to hear. I'm just going to, My job here is to give you the Word, and I'm sure I'm going to say enough to make just about everybody a little mad. So that's, that's kind of my goal. Just, if you lay here, everybody leaves here just a little mad, good. Then uh, that was good. We, we want to just straight up word of God. And so before we jump into it, let's go ahead and, and pray. Father, you are the sovereign one, the sovereign king, and Lord over all. And we bow, and we bow to you ultimately. And we worship you, and we worship you alone. And there is a lot that has gone on in our country this week, it's very clear that our country uh, is divided in many ways. And we come here united in Christ. And I know there's a lot going on in nations around the world. May we not think that it all revolves around us. As many are here from different countries, and they have a variety of issues in their own countries, may we have perspective this morning of you, our reigning king, who is sovereign in control. And may you speak true to us. To your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you voted for the first time. You like turned of age. Congratulations. It was your first time to vote in a presidential election. I remember the first presidential election I voted in in 1992. I'm going to give you a little bit of the context. You're probably not going to believe a lot of this, but I, I got saved pretty about a year before that, and I was trying to figure out how politics integrated with my faith at a very young age. So in the summer leading up to the election, I was a a youth pastor intern at a United Methodist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, for those of you who were alive during that time, understand the importance of Arkansas in the 1992 election. In fact, the church I was at was such a large United Methodist Church where I was interning, the pastor there had connections with the Clintons, the Democrat running during that election. And he actually had a bumper sticker on his car. You might not find it funny now, but back then it was quite hilarious. His bumper sticker said, put Hillary in office. Okay, you're not getting that, are you? Well, Hillary's actually Bill's wife, and back then that was, that was quite the joke. Uh, but one night, uh, Bill Clinton's daughter, and Hillary Clinton's daughter, Chelsea Clinton, came to youth group where I was the pastor at. And I don't remember much about the night, but I do remember in a game of Frisbee, I threw a Frisbee and busted her lip. <laughs> so straight up, I just busted her lip. I don't know how that fits politically, but I did bust her lip. <laughs> well, I, the, the, the reality is, is that that summer crowd I was around in that Methodist church, gung-ho Clinton supporters all the way, now, I told you I was new to this. So I was trying to figure things out, and I, and I wasn't buying in like everybody wanted me to buy in. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to check some things out. So while I was in Little Rock that summer, there was, I don't know if you know this, for those of you who are even alive, but there was actually a third-party candidate that ran, ran that year. His name was Ross Perot. He was quite the character. And I heard that he was coming to town, and I'm like, hey, I want to go to this. There have been to a political, I don't know, convention, I don't know, rally. So I show up, it's packed with thousands of people And I cannot believe it. And I'm standing there, and and they're acting like we are in church. They're raising their hands. They're saying amen. They're singing songs. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? And so then I finally finish my summer up with my adventure with the Clintons and with Perot. And I go back to my campus in Russellville, Arkansas. And I'm around my Southern Baptist friends all for George Bush. That would be George Bush Sr. at the time who was running, and they were so pumped up. I don't know if they were more for him or against Clinton. I couldn't figure it out. But they were they were just, let's just rally. And so I remember the night of the election because I was a DJ at the campus station. Now, my, my show was a combination of playing Christian music and techno. I have no idea how those mixed together, but that's a story for another time. And so the, the group after us that came in, it was their job to to bring the, the, the election results to Russellville, Arkansas. And they had all the boards up, and they were so excited. And, I, and I, as I watched, they're, they're tallying up the results. And it came up the conclusion of the election that year back in 1992 is Bill Clinton came out as the new president. Now, in response, some people were just elated, beyond elated. And some were crushed Beyond crushed. And that bothered me. Some Christians act like utopia was about to begin. And some Christians act like it was the end of the world. And that bothered me. As I was new in my faith, I was wondering what is going on? Why are you so inordinately crushed or inordinately happened? This, these are not messiahs. What what is going on here? And I just want to say, from the beginning of my Christian faith, politics left a very, very bad taste in my mouth. I'm not downplaying it, it's unimportant, please I don't want to hear that. But it just really set me going in the wrong direction. I was very upset. Just the how the Christians, how they reacted. And I don't know how reactions happened over this past Tuesday, but maybe some of you are elated, some of you are crushed, some of you may think utopia, some of you may think the end of the world. And I just want to come here this morning and say, my brothers and my sisters, I'm not downplaying the importance of political stuff, but let me tell you, we serve a sovereign, reigning king. We are those who buy into the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Douglas Wilson He's a pastor. I follow him all the time online. I really like him. Douglas Wilson, who's a big political writer. He's a pastor who writes a lot of, a lot of politics, and he's de- it's definitely a one-sided politics. But he says this, and this is what I'm getting at. He says, in our hearts, at the core of who we are, we are not Republicans. At the core of who we are, we are not Democrats. At the core of who we are, we're not independents or some third party. At the core of who we are, are monarchists. Do you get that? We're monarchists. We serve one true reigning king, and we want to be faithful monarchists. And so as we gather here this morning, I want to view us as absolute monarchists. We're our hearts, and we want to get at the heart. Not that we're not involved in politics, but at our heart, we serve as absolute monarchists, our true reigning king. And that's the direction I want to go from the word of God. Now, in order to give you kind of this proper biblical perspective, and I know for those of you not from America, I'm sorry, I'll be kind of slanting it toward American politics in some sense, not really, but if you're from different countries, I want to give you perspective, because I know some of you are from countries where you can't even vote, some of you have different type of governments than we have, And I'm hoping that this morning's study will give you perspective on what is set up even within your own country on how you can view what's happening in your country through the grid of the Word of God. I'm trying to give you some proper biblical perspective on governments and even politics from the Word of God. And so in order to keep us organized, let me go ahead and put this structure up for you. If you want to just put this structure up. This is where we're going. We'll put this up several times. You don't have to write it all down now. We're going to see how God relates to the king and the people. We're going to see how the king relates to God and the people. We're going to see how the people relate to God and the king. And there's going to be a lot of overlap from these sections. We're going to move in and out. That's generally where we're going. And I want you to keep in mind, the book of Proverbs is a father addressing his son. Remember, King Solomon is addressing his son. And King Solomon's son is going to follow after him to be the king. So it's very interesting that that's the context of this writing. It's words of preparation for kingship. So let's start with the first point. How God relates to the king and the people. Now, as we turn to these passages, you can either turn to them or I'm going to have them up on the screen. When we do this kind of topical thing in Proverbs, it's difficult, so I'll have them up on the screen or you can turn to them, whatever you want to do. But the first one is Proverbs 25, 2 through 3. Proverbs 25, 2 through 3. And let's consider this hierarchy that's going on from the word of God. Verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things. But the glory of kings is to search things out. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Let's stop there. The idea here is that God knows all the details of life, and it is for his glory to conceal things, which means God is ultimately sovereign. He's ultimately full of wisdom and authority and might, and he does not reveal everything to us. He does not have to. He is God. But the king or the ruler, or the president, under authority, under God, tries to make, or he should try to make, wise decisions under the authority of God. And so he, he's trying to figure out how to rule appropriately. So the next level of authority under God, under the king, is, under the, is the people. And we cannot see a sneak peek into the motives of our leaders. We can, we can only guess what's going on. But we, it, it, their hearts are unsearchable where we can't figure them out all the time because we can't see their motives. But God knows their hearts. God knows their motives because he's the absolute sovereign one with authority. So let's not forget this hierarchy structure in authority. We have God, we have the king, and we have the people. Now, with regard to God's authority, he rules over those in authority. Let me give you this verse, Proverbs 21.1. It's a great one. The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, He turns it wherever He will. Now, now check out this imagery. It's, it's the idea of um, a, f- a flowing w- ditch of water, and a farmer can direct this water wherever it is needed to water dry fields. And this basically means that the Lord directs the king's heart according to His sovereign will. One, one scholar basically said that that kings and rulers are. Putty in the hands of God. God directs their lives in the sense where he's putty. He's sovereign over them. And, and, and the idea is this is an Israelite king. This is one who's supposed to rule under the reign of God over Israel. And the context is one of blessing, where he's be an instrument of blessing and bring refreshment to the people as water to a dry land. So what should a leader do? A leader should humble himself under the authority of God and submit to God and say, okay, God, I am your instrument. I want to be used by you. But the question is, when we have leaders throughout the entire world right now who many of them would fall into the category of wicked, Uh, many of them would be non-Christian leaders, how are we to understand God's sovereignty over non-Christian leaders or wicked leaders from different countries Uh, different leaders within our countries that are not Christian? How do you see God's sovereignty and authority over their lives? Is it almost like that somebody had an election in a certain country and the result happened and no one checked with God beforehand? God was like, oh, did did they win? How did that happen? Is that what God's thinking? How, How did that ruler get there? No, 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 no. The Bible teaches us that God places rulers in authority throughout the world. Let me put this up for you. Romans 13, 1 through 2. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, check it out, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Okay. God appoints those who are in authority. Okay. Who wrote Romans? Humor me. Paul. Okay. Who was reigning in authority over the land when Paul's writing this? Which which Christian was it? Which Christian was it? It wasn't a Christian. He wrote this when Nero... This ruthless leader who persecuted rulers, Christians, he's reigning. And Paul says, God put him in power. Now, you submit to him. How are we to understand this? Get this. You can write this down if you want. Sovereign does not mean sanction. Sovereign does not mean sanction. Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean he blesses all the actions and laws of those in leadership. So, Christian, we should not always say, well, God is sovereign, doesn't matter. No, 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 no. God is sovereign, but it doesn't mean he blesses the policies of foolish leaders, There's a distinction between God's sovereign will and His moral will. And with regard to His sovereign will, He's always in control of everything. But His moral will, He definitely does not put His stamp of approval on sinful policies and sinful measures of different countries. Now, maybe you know, kind of confusing. You say, "Well, why would God appoint a wicked leader?" Do you remember Pharaoh in the Bible? Remember Pharaoh? Remember that guy, Pharaoh? He was a wicked leader. The Bible says God hardened his heart. Well, Pharaoh actually played a part in that hardening as well, correct? There's like this combo going on there. But God's not morally responsible for the evil. So the question is, why would God put a leader like that out there? Why would God, why doesn't God just make all the leaders Christians of all the countries in the world? Why does he put these wicked leaders up there? Just quit that. Why do you do that, God? And, and the first answer is, well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants, But if I'm trying to figure out some explanation, which I don't always have on this issue, I would say this, that God sometimes puts certain leaders in place to bless a nation. And sometimes he puts certain leaders in place to test a nation, to bring trials upon them. And sometimes God puts a leader in place to judge a nation. Now, I'm not here to stand before you and say I know which one of those categories for every country in the world because I don't know his sovereign will, but I do know that he's in charge. He decreed that Obama will be reelected on Tuesday. He decreed the different leaders in different countries that now exist because he is sovereign and in control, and he is our king, and he's the one that deserves all of our allegiance. And our ultimate bowing is to him and to him alone. But keep this in mind. Rulers come and rulers go. God puts one down, brings up another. Don't put your hope in a ruler. Don't put your hope in a political party. Don't put your hope in some certain governmental system. They come and they go. Our hope should be in God and God alone. Proverbs twenty nine twenty six. Last one I'm going to show you under this first point. Proverbs 29 and 26. Verse 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it's from the Lord that a man gets justice. People come to a ruler to get things done. Come on. And that's a good ruler should be able to figure things out, especially justice. But God's the one that ultimately gives justice. The verse is almost saying, look, don't look for your solutions in your leaders. Ultimately, come to me. Bow the knee to me. Seek my face. Justice ultimately comes from me. So he is the ultimate solution to our problems. We're not throwing out government altogether. But my brothers and sisters, we need to be careful that we do not have an inordinate hope upon certain leaders and a certain government. We shall have our hope fully and completely upon God and his rule. Well, now let's move on to the second point. Let's see this one. How the king relates to God and the people. There's a lot to say about kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers or whatever else rules the nations that you are a part of. But let's start with Proverbs chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. This comes from the perspective of the personified wisdom. We'll come to this chapter soon. Personified wisdom says... By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. So you can just imagine Solomon teaching his son and saying, Look, son, this is the way to pursue justice. It's by getting wisdom from fearing the Lord. It's where you punish evil and you protect the innocent. Even in the godless nations, it seems like the Lord has instituted leaders to distribute justice. Do you believe that? That God has instituted even pagan leaders to institute justice in the land. Once again, if we we want to think about Romans, I'm not going to put it up, but Romans even calls the pagan ruler God's servant. Did you know that? Romans 13, 4 calls the pagan ruler God's servant in the sense where God's servant will protect the law-abiding citizens and punish the wicked. Here, let me put a real comforting verse up for you. This is Proverbs 20, verse 26. This is really comforting. 20, 26 says, A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Yikes. <laughs> What's that all about? <laughs> well, I think the idea there is just a wheel goes over the grain to get the seed out, so the king just kind of Rolls on the wicked and separates them for punishment. And what I want to do in this section is we keep talking about earthly kings. I want to keep going back to the real, I guess, ultimate King, King Jesus. And there's a verse that kind of like this that applies to him. Let me put it up for you. Matthew 3:12 talks about King Jesus, what he'll do at the end. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So as an earthly king makes judgments down here, so our king will bring the ultimate judgment and separation at the end. Let's keep coming back to our king, Jesus. So not only were rulers expected to bring justice, but rulers were expected to care for the poor. We put up Proverbs 19, 14. Proverbs 19.14, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. So kings and rulers and those in authority are to care for the poor. In fact, there was once this mom who instructed her son, who was a king, to care for the poor. And it's in the Bible. The mom of King Lemuel in Proverbs said this, Proverbs 31.8-9. This is what the mom said. Trust your mom. She says this, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So this concept of justice was to trickle down to those who did not have power, and the kings and those in authority were to care for the poor and those who were struggling, like the orphan. Or the widow and the sojourner. The king was to stick up for them and bring them justice. Now, what I'm not going to do here this morning, which may frustrate some of you, is I'm not going to say, oh, see, the word of God says the king must care for the poor. Yes, it does say that. But I I can't stand up here and and endorse certain policies. I I can't figure that all out. And maybe that will take a lot of wisdom from many of you, but I can't say, here's a verse, here's a policy. Now, this was the way to take care of the poor. Because it's very complicated. I get that. The Bible also says if you don't work, you don't eat. And I I get that, okay? So I understand there's a lot going on here. I'm not trying to give simple answers, but I am trying to show you the king is to have a heart for those who are suffering. And we don't need to dog that. That's a good thing for those in leader to care for the poor because we can point to leaders around the world who are crushing their people. They don't care at all. And they're seeing that they're killed, So we we want to encourage a heart that has compassion for the poor. And once again, we go back to our King Jesus. What did our King Jesus do when he was here? He was compassionate and kind, and he reached out to the least, to the poor and to the suffering. So the king is to care about justice. He's to care for the poor. But he's also not to be corrupt. So I'm going to just picture for a moment that all of you are Illinois politicians. And I'm going to give a little lecture to you right now about how not to be corrupt, not to take bribes, not to go to jail. All right? Someone should have given that message a long time ago to many of them as they're in jail right now. So check out this verse in Proverbs 28, 15, and 16. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. <laughs> do you get that? Do you get that? That a lot of the, the corruption has to do with seeking after unjust gain, where you get the kind of the side, backhand payments, and you're using it in some sense to crush your people. Let me put another verse up. Proverbs 29.4. This should be put in front of all the Illinois lawmakers. By justice, a king builds up the land but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Don't you love that phrase, exacts gifts? That's the compelling or forcing backdoor payments. It, It really is a good phrase to describe the corruption and the bribes that can be in politics around the world and even in developed nations as our own. And those who rule this way will quickly come to a swift end. So now we see how God kind of relates to the people and to the king. We see how the king relates to God and the people. And lastly, we want to see how the people relate to God and the king. And this is the part you really need to listen to because this is almost like your obligations. This is like what are you supposed to do as you function under a government? Whether you're in a government like we have in America or the government that you have in your countries, what are you exactly supposed to do? You get these, these concepts of what, what does that look like in your life? So let's start off with Proverbs 24, 21, and 22. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. For disaster will arise suddenly from them. And who knows the ruin that will come from them both? So if you get this, the people are to fear the Lord, and they are to fear the king, or whoever the ruler is of the nation. Now, as so we've been going through Proverbs about the past two or three months, we've been talking a lot about fear of the Lord. But what does it actually mean to fear a king or to fear a ruler? Uh, this fear can be expressed in three different ways. I'm going to kind of put it up on the screen, and you can kind of just track with this. We're not going to go to all the verses, but let me just put these three up on the screen. You fear the Lord through submission, You the king, through submission, honor, and Prayer. Many of you in your ethos communities tonight will actually study Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. It's going to talk about submitting to the government authorities. And part of that submitting is you pay the taxes. You may not agree. You may not like them. But you pay them. If you don't pay them, I'll come visit you in jail. All right? Pay your taxes. But also part of this submission is obeying the laws of the land before we get into this, what, what if you say, well, what if I don't agree with the laws of the land? What if I don't like them? Is there ever a place for civil disobedience? How about that for a good question? Is there ever a place for a revolution? A lot of revolutions have been happening recently, right? Is there ever a place for that? You think about the Bible. You think about... Um, John and Peter, they were told, don't preach the gospel. And what do they say? Okay, we won't preach the gospel. Now they're like, sorry, man, we're preaching the gospel. So what does a a civil disobedience look like? Discuss it in your ethos communities. That's where I'm going to leave you at. You guys discuss that. You guys talk about that. I don't want you throwing stuff at me. You guys can talk about that. Talk about that in your groups tonight. Think about it. These are not easy answers. What does it look like? But what does it look like if you disagree with the laws of land? Well, if for those of you who have the skill and the ability and the calling, go into politics. Do something about it. And some of you actually do have the skill and ability to do that. But for the rest of us, in this country at least, I don't know about your country, where you're from, we have the privilege in our country to do something called Vote. So the question is, well, how do you figure out what to vote? How do you vote? I mean, you know how to vote, but what do you vote for? A person who I've found very helpful with this is a pastor in Dallas. My wife used to go to his church. It's Pastor Tony Evans, and he tries to simplify it. And if you think this is too simple, I'm sorry, but I don't like complicated things. This is what he says. This is how you should vote in America. You should take out a piece of paper and make four columns. This is really, really hard, guys. Check it out. The first column, you put the issue. Whatever the issue is, you put it there. The second column, you put what the Republicans say. The third column, you put what the Democrats say. Now, if you really want to be fancy, you can add the third parties and everything, but let's just keep it simple. You put what the Democrats say. And then the fourth column, you put what God says. What does the Bible have to say about the issue? He says you do that whole thing, and then what we all have to do is you prioritize the issues. You prioritize them. What I'm just, I'm, I get kind of concerned about is that sometimes we just go and we support this person because we think they're cool or something, or that person because it seems like a good idea, but it'd be pretty wise of us, don't you think, to think through the issues. And see what God has to say on the issues and, and then prioritize them and then vote. But when it's all said and done, my brothers and sisters, the word of God is saying we we submit. We submit. Well, what's another way we can fear the king? Well, we can fear the king also by honor. We're not gonna look at it, but first Peter two thirteen through seventeen. It talks about the subject of uh, honoring government leaders by saying, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Pastor Russell Moore, a very respected pastor, he says, honor doesn't mean blanket endorsement. I'm sure Paul wasn't saying, you know what? Just go ahead and endorse everything that Nero's going to do to us. No, doesn't mean blanket endorsement. But honor does mean, as Russell Moore continues to say, he says it does mean that we don't give ourselves to using terms of disrespect. Hello? Anybody? (laughs) We don't use terms of disrespect. And he also says that we don't follow every crazy conspiracy theory that floats across the Internet. Hello, anybody? Come on. We cannot be those who go around bad-mouthing our politicians because we heard some psycho-crazy thing. We must show honor and respect to the emperor. And the last way that we fear the king and those in authority is that we pray for them. It actually says that in the Bible. First Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, that We are to pray for kings and all who are in authority. So as you reflect back on your leaders you've had the last four years, maybe the last eight years, the last 12 years, have you prayed for your leaders, your elected officials in this country, more than you have criticized them? Have you prayed for them more than you've criticized them? Jesus made this comment one. He says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So if you were in an office, public office, would you want someone to criticize you or pray for you? Okay, you'll take some of the critique. That's fine. But come on. We are called as Christians to pray for those in leadership. So the way that we fear the king, is so through submission, through honor, and prayer. But what I'm about to say now, I, I just really want you to listen. we're also to live a holy righteous life a gospel life for the benefit of others and the benefit of our nation regardless of what happens in elections proverbs 14:34 proverbs 14:34 thir- says righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people Look at it again. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. When people walk in righteousness and justice, it benefits the nation. The same way people walk in foolishness, it can hinder the nation. I want you to listen. Listen to this. Don't think that now the election is over. Maybe, maybe your people won. I, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they won. You say, good, now they can go do their thing. Or maybe... Or maybe my people didn't win, and so now I just give up. Are you, are you kidding me? It's not the end of the world, and it's not certainly not utopia either. So now the election is over, and maybe you didn't get your way. You're still supposed to live in a way that impacts the culture with the gospel, regardless of the election results. They'll be freaking out. You just have a part to play. I'm just just going to be totally honest with you, okay? And this is not a political statement. And they'll say, Pastor, you're being all political. Give me a break. I've never been characterized as one who's political, okay? So don't think I'm saying that. But listen to me. I'm going to be very open with you. It is my opinion, and I think it's from the Bible, that children should be valued. I like to see them running around, not in church, but occasionally running around. I like kids running around. And I, I think that children... Even in their mom's belly, the womb, are valuable as well. And I am I'm 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 just deeply grieved that our laws allow abortion. And this is what I'm thinking is going to happen. I'm, I'm thinking this is going to happen. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the next generation will say, "What were you guys thinking? You guys were idiots." Are you kidding me? You really did that? And they're going to rise up. And I know there is absolute repentance for anyone in here who's gone that direction. And there is repentance for our nation. But I want to tell you this. Even if that law does not get changed, I'm not going to go to my home and just freak out. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, you know what? And my my wife's going to probably freak out right now. I'm going to say, honey, we'll just fill our house completely with all the unwanted kids. I don't care what the election says. I want to do something here. Don't so just say, well, they didn't win. I didn't win Okay, that's fine, but they'll just do your thing. Whatever your thing is. For years, for years, many of you, maybe you've been passionate about immigrants and you think the law should be changed, to be more beneficial toward immigrants and maybe things have not been going your way, but you don't need to freak out. You need to do something. There's plenty of immigrants around that you can go and show compassion and love and minister their life. So don't think that the election just holds our hope and our salvation and then we just do nothing. Are you kidding me? We're gospel people. We impact culture. That's who we are. For some of you, you'll do it through politics. But for most of us, you won't. My brothers and sisters, we are absolute monarchists. <laughs> and our king is winning. <laughs> our king has won. And he gives all of our allegiance. This past Tuesday, many Christians around the country, they went and they did their thing. They voted. But then they did something pretty cool afterwards. After they voted, they gathered in these little communities all over America and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They took communion together. And part of what they were doing was that they were remembering their true loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is no Messiah coming from politics, there's no salvation. True salvation comes through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, because only Jesus can free us from sin. Only Jesus can give us His power to change. Only Jesus can reconcile us to the Father. And so these Christians gather to remember their true allegiance to the crucified, resurrected, and reigning king, and we are about to do the same. We function and we live our lives as absolute monarchists. That's where our heart is. That's where our ultimate allegiance is. It's to King Jesus as he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. You are the king, and we bow to you. And if we've been off recently thinking that our hope was somewhere else, may you forgive us. May our hope be in you, in you alone. And Lord, help us to think biblically about those in authority. Help us to think biblically about how we can shape and impact our culture with the gospel. But as all said and done, Lord, may we worship you and give you glory and give you all praise. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for, for giving us our sins through faith in you and repentance. And thank you that you're reigning. And we ask that you would come back quickly. May we see the established king reigning and ruling. Until then, Lord, make us faithful, faithful monarchists to ultimately bow the knee to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.